Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 through 35. By the way, y'all are welcome to amen and whatever loud enough so that people can hear. They may or may not. My microphone for this one probably only will pick up my voice, but I want them to see that there are people here because you can't see you on the camera. So, yeah. <laughs> Thank you, John, for giving that a chance here. So, All right. Matthew 18, verses 21 through 35. It says, Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed ten thousand talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children, and all that he had in payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants and who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that, they, that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in, his anger, sorry, and in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Now, the obvious undertone, if you've been with us in the last few weeks online, the obvious undertone of Jesus' teaching in the last few verses that we've been looking at has been forgiveness. Both God forgiving us and our forgiving each other. Let me just kind of remind you. Jump back to Matthew 18, verses 12 through 15, the passage we finished with last week. In Matthew 18, verses 12 through 15, it says this. He says, What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. And if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Now, I don't know if you caught it, but the undertone of that is forgiveness. The only reason we can be made right before God is if he forgives us of our sins. That one if, of the 99, if you will, that has been found has been forgiven. And again, if you've got an issue with your brother, the undertone of Jesus' teaching in the last few weeks has actually been forgiveness. Now it's going to come into greater detail. Now, the Jewish rabbis incorrectly taught that God only forgave three times. Now, they then said, so to forgive anyone more than three times is too much because God only forgives three times. Now, where did they get that? Well, I'll show you. Go with me to the book of Amos, chapter 1. <clears throat> In Amos, chapter 1, is where, we get, where the, the Jewish rabbis got this incorrect teaching that God only forgave three times. I'm going to read to you verse 3, verse 6, verse 9, verse 11, and verse 13. All right, so it's 3, 6, 9, 11, and 13. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, 
because they have threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. Verse 6, for, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Gaza and for four I will not revoke the punishment because they carried into exile a whole people to deliver them up to Edom. Verse 9, for three, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Tyre and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they delivered up a whole people to Edom and did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. Verse 11, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Edom and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because he pursued his brother with the sword and cast off all pity, so on. Verse 13, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of the Ammonites and for four I will not revoke the punishment. So the, the, the rabbi said that God forgave three times, but he didn't forgive a fourth time. Therefore, you only can forgive three times. If you forgive more than that, you're trying to be greater than God, and it's a waste. Now, let me just quickly say, hopefully you understand, that's a dangerous way to interpret Scripture to take a passage and say, well, since he did it that way, that must be how it is all the time. You have to get your understanding of your interpretation from the context and then check your interpretation from the context against the whole of Scripture. If that interpretation matches against the whole book, then you've got a correct interpretation because God wrote the whole thing. As you're about to see, teaching that God forgave only three times, and if you forgive more than that, you're wrong, doesn't match up with the whole of Scripture. All right? So... Peter senses that Jesus, like I told you, the undertone of our teaching for the last few weeks, Peter senses that Jesus is desiring them to have the same heart of forgiveness that God does. So Peter asks if seven times is a good number to use as his limit of forgiveness. Did anybody catch the word that I used? No. Limit. Don't miss that word limit. Because then you'll understand what Peter's really asking, and that'll help you understand Jesus' answer even more. Again, Peter says, if, he asks if seven times is a good number to use as his limit to forgiveness. Notice the attitude behind it. Peter's asking, what is the limit to my forgiveness of someone? We can get caught up on the number seven and miss that he was saying, what's the limit to the amount of times that I can forgive somebody? He thought he was doing great because the rabbis taught three. He's obviously sensing Jesus' teaching that God really has a heart of forgiveness. So he's thinking seven is his limit, and that's pretty impressive. And that's why Jesus says there should be no limit to your forgiveness. That's why he says 70 times seven or 77 times, depending on which translation you have. But the whole point of what Jesus says to him is, you're still looking for a number to limit it. You, if you, have, you think there's a limit, you've totally missed the heart of God. Go real quick to Luke chapter 17. Let me show you what I mean. In Luke chapter 17, look at verses 3 and 4. In Luke 17, by the way, I'm going to say it again. It's so good to see faces again. I've missed you all like you wouldn't believe. Luke 17, verses 3 through 4. Jesus says in verse 3, Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times, saying, I repent, you must forgive him. So here he's saying, every time he repents, forgive him every time. If he does it seven times in a day, forgive him all those seven times. Again, we, we keep looking at the limit, and Jesus is teaching them there is no limit. So to illustrate this, Jesus tells them this parable that we read tonight. He tells the parable to illustrate the point of how much God has forgiven us who have received his offer of forgiveness and how we too now should pass 
that unlimited forgiveness on to others. He tells of a person who owed 10,000 talents. Now, you have to do some math with me tonight to be able to understand what Jesus just said. Because talents don't make a whole lot of sense to us, and 10,000 talents, what is that? Well, let me help you out with this, and then some of you do some math, all right? One talent was equal to 20 years' salary. All right, you, you with me? One talent was equal to 20 years, an average 20 years of salary for a worker, all right? If he said the guy owed 10,000 talents, how many years' salary did this guy owe? Did you just say three? <laughs> the answer, you know what? I was excited about y'all being back. John, I'm, now, I'm, now I'm starting to wonder. The answer is 200,000 years of salary is what he owed. So Jesus is telling a story, and he says the man owes 200,000 years of salary. By the way, how long is that going to take him to pay it off? If he didn't do anything but take his whole paycheck to pay off the debt, it would take him 200,000 years. So in other words, the guy owed a gazillion billion. That's what Jesus is saying. <laughs> kind of like our country. Okay, let's not go there. All right, so it will help us now to understand by doing the math that this debt was impossible to repay. Now, the guy actually says, and I want you to look closely at what he says. Look, look closely at what he says here in verse uh, 26. Servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. Did the person understand how much he owed? If he owed 200,000 years of salary, does he really think he can pay him back? He doesn't fully grasp the debt that he owes. By the way, it's very important that you stick with me on this, too, because you're going to hear those words again later on. Be patient with me, and I'll pay you back everything. Now, out of pity, I put in my notes, mercy and grace. Look at verse 27. Out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the whole debt. The guy owed an amount that he could never repay. He didn't even fully understand how much he owed. He thought he could try to pay it back. And the master, even though the master knew you'll never be able to pay me back, he forgave him the whole debt. By the way, you do understand that we too had a debt of sin that we could not pay. We too were under the curse of sin and the penalty of death. But God, through Christ, forgave us of having to pay that debt. I do hope you understand that. Let me say something to you that I, I think you hopefully understand. I don't think you and I, just like this servant in the story, really understand how much we owe. I don't think we fully grasped how much we owed. So I'm going to just take you to a couple of passages of Scripture real quick that kind of talk about it. Go to Romans chapter 6 and just look at verse 23. Many of us remember this from when we were younger and were taught the Roman road and how to share the gospel. But in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, look at verse 23. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Go to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. In Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15, the scripture says this, And you 
who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Jesus paid the whole debt for us himself. By the way, um, the scripture in our story that Jesus tells says that the master did it out of pity. Like I told you, I put it in my notes, mercy and grace. Does anybody know why God saving us is his mercy? By the way, that was a question. You haven't been gone that long, have you? Okay, but why, why, why is it called mercy? We don't deserve it. We deserve to go to hell and to be judged for our sins. And in his mercy, he says, I'm not going to give you what you deserve. Why is it also his grace? God's riches at Christ's expense. Right. It, 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 like you said, God's riches at Christ's expense. He's given, not only kept us from getting what we do deserve, he's also given us what we don't deserve. It's mercy and grace. And folks, I'm going to lay a challenge to you. I'm going to ask you to, in your quiet time, and have God do this for you little by little over a long period of time, because I honestly think if you fully grasped it all at once, you probably would die. I'm going to ask you to ask God to, as you spend time with him in his word, to let you start to grasp a little bit more each day what he's really done for you and your salvation. Because honestly, I think that will do more than anything else when it comes to how we live our lives in obedience to him and walking with him. If we fully understand the height, the depth, the width, the breadth, and the love of God, It'll affect how we live with our struggle with sin and our sharing of the gospel, all these things. So I'm going to challenge you. In your quiet time, make a little note. Write it down. Begin to ask God in his timing and what he knows you can handle in his way. For each of us, it'll be a little bit different to show you a little bit more each day if possible or however he chooses to really help you understand a little bit more the depth of his, of his love for you and what's really been accomplished in your salvation. Because honestly, folks, and, and, and I can't wait till next week to really get into this more, God has been beginning through this time to show me more and more of this, and it's blowing my mind, and I've been walking with him since 1973. And I'm starting now, even now, to realize I haven't even touched the surface of really understanding what was done in my salvation. Now, Unfortunately, in Jesus' story, that same man that had been forgiven that unpayable debt went and found someone who owed him some money. And even though that one, the one who owed him asked for the same mercy with the same words that he himself had just used, he wouldn't forgive his fellow servant. Look again at Matthew 18, verses 28 through 30. Verse 28. But when that same servant went out, and he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. Do you see it? It's almost word for word what he had just said. He refused, and he went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. Now, again, doing some math will help us understand. This other man owed this first man that had been forgiven the debt a hundred denarii. One denarius 
is one day's wage for a common laborer. Jump over to chapter 20 of Matthew. You'll see it in the passage we're going to be studying next week. In Matthew chapter 20, look at verses 1 and 2. Jesus says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. All right, so we're going to deal with that story next week. Can't wait to show you the cool stuff in that story. But we see that a common day's laborer's pay was a denarius. You get a whole day's pay was one denarius. The guy owed him a hundred denarius. So let's just round it out to roughly three months salary. Okay. The guy had owed him about three months salary. Now that's not a small amount. If someone owes you three months of salary, but in, exactly way to go, Joe, in comparison to 200,000 years of salary, it's nothing, isn't it? It's, it's a joke to even compare them. And some of you feel like there are some people that have done you wrong, and it hurts, and you're upset, and, and I don't want to belittle it. They, what they did was, in comparison, in comparison to what you owed the Lord, the creator of the universe, holy, perfect God, I don't think we understand. If we have trouble forgiving people, we don't really understand how much we've been forgiven. So the king got word that the first man who had been forgiven the debt would not forgive the other man, and the king was furious. You see that in the Bible? You see the story? The master was furious. Now, I'm going to bring out to you three reasons why, and there's more, but there's three main reasons I've pulled out from this passage and from the scriptures why the, the king was furious. The first one is this. Not forgiving others when we've been forgiven so much shows that we don't truly appreciate how much we've been forgiven. It shows we're really ungrateful. If we've been forgiven such a huge debt and we're not willing to forgive someone who owes us a pittance in comparison, it actually shows we're ungrateful for what he's done. I mean, when this master forgave him 200,000 years of salary, by the way, for the fun of it, I sat down and just on a calculator said, okay, let's just say a person makes 50000 a year. Then we want to do a math of 200000 200, times 50000 uh, uh, Let me just tell you, my calculator on my phone put out a number that I don't understand because it gave a number and a letter. The n zeros were so long, it couldn't do it, and I think it came to 10E. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's 10E means that's too many. All right? Think about that for a second, folks. And some of you make more than 50000 a year. At 50000 a year, 200000 a year salary is a number beyond what you can fathom. All right? It's in the billions. So, when we don't really show that we're grateful for what he's done for us, it makes the king mad. I'm not going to, for the sake of time, have you read this passage with me, but write it down, look at it later on in Luke chapter 6, verses 36 through 47. Luke 6, 36 through 47. Jesus is in a house. Pharisees invited him. And this woman who was a sinner comes and wipes his feet with her tears and her hair and pours perfume on him. And the owner of the house says, if this guy really were a prophet, he'd know what kind of a person was touching him, that she's a sinner. And Jesus says, let me ask you a question. 
He says, uh, two people were forgiven a debt. One was a small debt, another one was a big debt. Which one's going to love the person that forgave more? And the guy says, the one person that had received the bigger debt. And he says, you've, you've answered correctly. This woman has been forgiven much, therefore she loves much. And what he was really saying, because the Bible says we've all been forgiven the same amount. None of us have been forgiven more than anybody else. Because if you think, well, that person sinned a lot more than I've sinned. I really haven't sinned that much. You still don't get it. I'm going to show you that in just a second. Actually, no, yeah, later in the study. So don't take second literally. But here's the deal. The, the scripture says this. When we really understand how much we've been forgiven, our love will increase. And when you are not willing to forgive someone that's done something to you in comparison to what you've been forgiven, which is nothing, the Bible says it shows that you're ungrateful for what's been done. Secondly, those of us who have been forgiven much by our Heavenly Father are commanded, I'm going to show you that in scriptures, we're commanded to demonstrate the Father's love by sharing that same forgiveness that we have received. We already saw it in Luke 17 where he says, if he's forgive, ask for repents seven times in a day, you forgive him seven times. It's a command. But let me show you two others. Go to Ephesians chapter 4. Mm-hmm. Right. But forgiveness and approval are two different things. True. Say, so, forgiving is not approving. Right. Right. So your question, though, is what? Right. Right. Okay, for those of you that are, are online following along, I know those that are listening uh, on just the website, you can hear what she's saying because we got a microphone for the room. For those on the camera, the question is, if a person continually, continually, continually sins against you and keeps asking, where do you get to that balance of forgiveness and accountability? The short answer, I don't have time to get into the long answer. The short answer is, have an attitude of forgiveness that says, if this is sincere, it's forgiven. At the same time, we really don't know people's hearts, and we're going to have to also at the same time, the Bible talks about not casting your pearls before swine. There needs to be, and the Holy Spirit, honestly, to answer your question, Sheila, is the Holy Spirit's going to have to give you wisdom where to draw your boundaries. I can't teach everybody and say, here's how you do it with everybody, because in some instances, God's saying, look, I know it seems like he's never going to stop, but tomorrow at three in the afternoon, he's finally going to get it. And I, you know what I'm saying? God knows stuff we don't know. So in each of us, the Holy Spirit's going to have to give them wisdom. We, unfortunately, want to turn the Christian life into a set of rules and a formula to follow, and there isn't one. And that's why Christians fight with each other so much, because, well, God made it very clear to me. It's got to be the same way with you. And God says, no, like with Peter and John, if I want him to remain alive till I return, what's that to you? You follow me. So the short answer is the Holy Spirit will give you wisdom in that. Okay, John, your question. It's so hard. My brother's asking for forgiveness. It's so hard for me to forgive it. Yep. John's question is, he's got a, someone that's wanting him to forgive a large debt, and it's, why is it so hard? Here's why. Because we want justice. We're going to deal with that 
next week. So if you can hold on, I believe your answer is going to be next week's study. All right. But let me say it this. For too long, people have said to me, well, they didn't ask for forgiveness. I'll forgive them when they ask. Whoa, 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 whoa. Remember, Jesus is teaching the heart of God. Jesus is on the cross saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Stephen is being stoned and he says, Father, don't hold this sin against them. When you truly understand the forgiveness of God and the heart of God, there's an attitude of forgiveness. And this goes back to your question as well, Sheila. There's an attitude of forgiveness before they even do it again. That's, let's be honest. Is that not beyond us? That's supernatural. Oh, but if you have that attitude, it's obvious that God's doing something. All right. Go to Colossians chapter 3. Sorry, Ephesians. We never read the Ephesians passage. Ephesians 4, verse 32. Ephesians 4, verse 32. Be kind to one another. This is one of the verses that Ray likes to quote on the, on the golf course once in a while. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Do you see it? We're to be forgiving others as God has forgiven us. Go to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians 3, verses 12 and 13. In Colossians 3, verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. So, the two things I'm pulled out as to why the king was furious. One, the fact that this servant was not willing to forgive, even though he had been forgiven a greater debt, showed that he was ungrateful for what he had been given. Two, we've been commanded by God to forgive. And when someone who has been forgiven doesn't share that same attitude shown to him by the Father or her by the Father, listen, you're making yourself more important than the king. That's what you're really doing. You're not only ungrateful, you're saying, I know the king forgave me this huge debt, but I won't forgive you the lesser debt. You're making yourself more important than God. Be careful. And here's the third thing that's even more scary. And I'm going to say it to you and show it to you from the scriptures. And I'm not going to be placing myself in the role of judge and who's saved and who's not. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. He's the one that confirms in our hearts that we're his children and that his spirit testifies with our spirit. We're not to judge who's wheat and who's tares. But I'm going to share you what the scripture says and let the Holy Spirit take it from there. By not forgiving his fellow servant, he was showing that he had never truly received the forgiveness offered by the king in the first place thereby still owing the debt. You did realize that because he wouldn't forgive the other servant, he was thrown into the jail until he should pay the whole amount? Wait a minute, was he forgiven and then he lost his salvation? No, no, no. God's forgiven the whole world. The Bible teaches that the evidence that you have actually received the forgiveness that God is offering to everyone is the fact that you have no problem sharing that forgiveness with your brother or your sister. Do you understand what I'm saying? Jesus was on the cross reconciling the world to himself. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, Colossians says. Second Corinthians, Colossians chapter 2 talks about it. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 talks about it. How God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting men's sins against them. Now the message is, where is ambassadors? Be reconciled to God. In other words, God's already forgiven you of your sins. 
You need to receive it. And the evidence that you have received it is you share it with everybody around you because you've received such a great salvation. The fact that he wasn't willing to share it, even though he had been forgiven, showed that he didn't receive that forgiveness. Therefore, he still owed the debt. Well, let's let the scripture speak. Go to Matthew chapter 6. And again, please be careful of not going down the road of thinking, well, I think that person's saved and that person's not because of forgiveness or unforgiveness. Every one of us wrestles with it in some level throughout our walk. In Matthew chapter 6, listen to verses 12 and then 14 and 15. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 12, Jesus taught us in the Lord's Prayer, and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. Look at verses 14 and 15. Jesus says, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Go to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. Look at verses 7 and 8. It's all the way back by the book of Revelation. 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Jump down to verses 19 and 21. In this same chapter, 1 John 4, verses 19 and 21. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Three things why the master was was furious. One, it showed he was ungrateful. Two, he had been commanded, we've been commanded by God to share the the, uh, forgiveness that we've received. And when we don't, we're making ourselves greater than God. And three, it actually is showing that we never really received the forgiveness in the first place, even though it was offered. So throughout this story, we now see that Jesus is teaching that forgiveness has no limit, but must be shared without limit to others as evidence that we have truly received God's forgiveness. Write this down. I'm going to quote it to you. Matthew chapter 7, verse 2 says this. With the same measure you judge, you will be judged. Remember how the golden rule, does anybody remember the golden rule? Do unto others as you would have done unto you. You want to be forgiven? Forgive. Let's jump over to Matthew chapter 19. Now, here's where we're going to be going like lightning. Because in Matthew chapter 19, verses 1 through 12, I'm not even going to read it to you. You can read for yourself. Matthew 19, verses 1 through 12, Jesus teaches on divorce. But we're not going to study this passage again because I've already covered Jesus' teaching on divorce in great detail when we studied Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 and 32. Now, some of you say, well, that was two years ago. Yeah, it was. But in our whole hour study that we took back then on Jesus' teaching about divorce, we covered these verses back then. Now, some of you are saying, well, I, I, I wasn't here for that. It's okay. Thank God for the people that do our website. If you'd like to hear that study, go to the Bible studies section of our website, go to recordings, and then go to Bible studies, 
And under the Matthew study, look under Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 and 32, and I'm going to help you a little bit more, especially those of you that are watching online that have finally been able to be a part of our studies. It's going to be either January 8th or January 9th. I taught it on January 8th for the Tuesday night group, and I taught it on January 9th for the Wednesday night group. If you're curious about what Jesus is teaching on divorce is, and I took a whole hour to deal with it, this section's covered, as well as Matthew chapter 5, verses uh, 31 and 32, and many, many others, if you remember. I really want you to go. If you're really curious about Jesus' teaching, you really, really, really need to go to that study. I get into how the Bible talks about marriage and remarriage and forgiveness and all this stuff. It's a cool study. We're just not going to do it tonight because we've already done it. All right? That was 2019. Thank you for bringing that up. That was back in January 8th or January 9th of 2019. Not this year. All right. Now, you ready for the next couple of verses? Matthew chapter 19, verses 13 and 15, through 15? We covered those last week. So we're not going to read those either. So guess what? We are now all the way to Matthew chapter 19, verses 16 through 30. We're not, I'm going to read the whole section. We'll kind of cover all of this tonight, but we're going to pick up in the midst of the end of it next week as well. So Matthew 19, verses 16 through 30. Some of you can unbuckle your seatbelts. We've never gone that fast through the through the Bible, but here we go. Matthew 19, chapter 19, verse 16 and following. And behold, a man came up to him, meaning Jesus, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you would find, uh, uh, sorry, there's only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now the young man said to him, all these I have kept, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions." And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or lands, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold, and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Now, Jesus has been teaching them that salvation and forgiveness is from God, and it's totally by God's grace and mercy, since we cannot ever pay back God for the debt that we owe. Just what we just looked at, all right? Now, hopefully, we should realize that we can never earn or achieve salvation by our own merit or works. Hopefully, we all understand this. Go to Ephesians chapter 2, just in case there's someone out there listening right now that doesn't understand this. We've been talking about it already in our study, how the man owed a debt that he could never, ever pay. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, look at verses 8 and 9. We all know it pretty well, but I want to show it to you in context. We're going to kind of read those two verses, and then we're going to go backwards. Ephesians chapter 2, look at verses 8 and 9. 
It says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. Oops, I'm reading too far. We'll just stop in verse 9. We're saved by grace through faith. Now hang on for a second. Remember how we looked at earlier in that parable of the man? He had never actually received it by faith. And it was demonstrated how? By his actions. Because if he really believed by faith that he has forgiven that amount, he would have gone, dude, you owe me that much? That's nothing. Forget it. If he had really by faith believed that he had been forgiven that debt. But he, the, anger he the anger that he demonstrated showed that he didn't. But now in chapter 2, though, we've always looked at 8 and 9. I tried verse 10 a little bit tonight, too. Go back to verses 1 through 7. Go to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Let's kind of set the stage for what Paul says there. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. Oh, no, I wasn't. Yes, you were. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he's loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Now read verses 8 and 9 with me. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one will boast. Unfortunately, the Jews had been taught that you earned salvation by doing good deeds and by giving alms, donations. And so the rich were closer to God than the poor because they could give more money. The more money you gave, the more God was pleased. So the rich people were definitely closer to God. And on top of that, since they were rich, it was obvious that God was pleased with them since he was blessing them. And that was what the Jews taught. The rich people were the ones who were being blessed by God because they were good. And because they had so much money, they gave more than the poor. And you had to earn your salvation by doing things. By the way, some of you right now are in a denomination that teaches that you believe in Jesus, but you still got to do so many things. You got to do your penance. You got to do your different acts of grace. I'm just saying to you right now, if you think that anything you do is going to get you closer to God, you're hearing bad teaching in your church. It's by grace through faith. We walk in obedience to him. But I'm going to keep from preaching next week's study. You think it earns you anything, you totally don't get it. Go to 1 Timothy chapter 6, though. Because as silly as that teaching about the rich sounds to us, I don't know how many of you realize this, there's preachers out there today that are teaching the same type of a thing, aren't they? They're teaching that if you walk with God at a certain level in obedience, He's going to bless you, He's going to make you rich. And that's evidence of your salvation and evidence that he loves you more. And if you really are walking with God, like me, you'll have cars and diamonds and all these things. Guess what? That false teaching is out there today. Listen to 1 Timothy chapter 6, though. Even though the scripture says it's wrong, go to 1 Timothy 6, look at verses 3 through 11. He says, If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness... He's puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. 
He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarreling about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in their mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But you, as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Man, I've heard stories of preachers out there who are the health and wealth preachers or covered in diamond rings and gold rings, and someone will ask them, should a preacher have gold rings? And the preachers have said over the years, this, these false teachers, they've said this, they've gone, well, the streets of heaven are paved with gold, why can't I have some now? When the scripture says... That's actually going to do you damage. Why would you teach people that walking with God's going to make you wealthy? That's not what the Bible teaches. They think that godliness is a means of financial gain when that's not what the Bible teaches. 1 Timothy chapter 6, look at verses 17 through 19. As for the rich in this present age, tar- charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They're to do good and to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, talking about in heaven, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Go to James chapter 2. In James chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. James says, my brothers, James chapter 2, verse 1, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you've dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love the neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. So the scripture teaches that we should not be teaching that the rich are closer to God. Kind of teaches the opposite, doesn't it? It actually warns the rich and says, be careful. By the way, as I was reading that, I started thinking about all of you all and how you come in dressed. And it hit me. Last week, you were watching Bible study probably in your pajamas, weren't you, Chris? Chris Chris sends me his text every night saying, I was watching the Bible study in my pajamas. It was nice to see you wearing clothes. Thank you for not coming in your pajamas, at least. But at the same time, the Bible teaches that it's not the rich who are closer to God, but those who are rich in what? Faith. Those who are rich in faith. Now, the Jews had been taught, though, that a rich person was closer to God. And so the rich young ruler now comes, and says, what must I do to inherit 
eternal life. Now, Jesus realizes a great teaching opportunity has just arrived in front of his disciples when this guy comes and asks this question. Because he asks, what must I do to get eternal life? Now, for the sake of time, I want you to write down these passages. We usually look at Mark and Luke's account of the same passage to get a better idea. I don't have time tonight to do that, so write it down, and, and I'm going to tell you what they're saying. Go to Mark 10 later on, and look, Mark 10, 17 through 31. Mark 10, 17 through 31, and Luke 18, 18 through 30. Mark 10, 17 through 31, and Luke 18, 18 through 30. As you read all three accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke's, you'll see that Jesus redirects this man's use of the term good to point out the fact that no one is good but God. Now, I didn't see this until I studied for this night. There's something here that I've missed all these years. Because, you know, people always say, well, Jesus said there's no one good but God. He was saying that he wasn't God. No, he wasn't saying that he wasn't God. But he's doing something here. By pointing out that no one is good but God, he is telling this man that no one is good except God, and therefore no one can be good by doing good things. What must I do to get eternal life? What good thing must I do to become good and get into heaven? Jesus says there's no one good but God. In other words, if there's no one good but God, you can't ever be good. Oh, dip. Well, good. I'm glad. I hope you hear that. That's, I hope that's your reaction. When you understand your lostness, you're ready for the good news. Oh, salvation is still possible. But it's not by anything you do. You can't be good. There's no one good but God. How often, though, have we said, well, I know my boy's lost, but he's still a good person. You ever hear that? I know my, my friend's lost, but he's really a good person. No, there's no one good. By the way, I know I'm pretty impressive to you. I try to be. But I'm not that good. My kids are here. My wife is here. Ask them. I'm not that good. I'm only what I am by the grace of God. You're not good unless God gives you that. That righteousness has to come from him. You know Romans chapter 3, verse 10, don't you? The scripture says there's no one righteous, no, not one. So in telling the man, though, to keep the commandments in order to enter life, Jesus is actually attempting to show this man the same thing that we just talked about, that there's no one good. No one can be good by doing good things. Why does he then tell him to keep the law? By the way, if you don't get this answer, I've got to reteach from the beginning. I've been telling you. You can't. What's the purpose of the law? To show you can't keep it. That's the whole purpose of the law. So when he says to him, keep the law and keep the commandments, he says to him, keep the commandments. So you do remember that from the story, right? He says, keep the commandments. What was the man's answer or question when Jesus says, keep the commandments? Which ones? Don't miss this. Just like earlier tonight, we noticed there is something in Peter's question. What's the limit? to my forgiveness, there's something in his question that's pointing something out as well. He says, which ones? In other words, he doesn't understand that if you're going to be good enough in God's eyes by keeping the law, you have to what? You have to keep them all perfectly. Go to Galatians real quick. Go to Galatians chapter 3. When he says, which ones, he's thinking he can do a few of them and be okay. 
And how often do people say, well, I haven't done this and I haven't done that. Oh, I might have done these things. But for the most part, I'm pretty good. They still don't get it. I'm sorry. I haven't killed anybody. Yeah, we hear that one all the time. Go to Galatians chapter 3. Look at verse 10, though. It says in Galatians 3.10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. By the way, you want to have some fun. You go back and look when God gave them the law and then he commands them to keep it. They all in unison say, we will do everything that's written here. And God laughs to himself and says, you'll find out in time that you can't. But if you think you can be good enough by being good, I have done a couple. No, no. Cursed is everyone who does not abide by everything written in the book of the law. Now, also, if you go back and look in Matthew, interestingly, when Jesus quotes from the Ten Commandments, when the guy says, which ones? Jesus actually starts with the last six. If you may or may not know this, the Ten Commandments are broken down in the first four, which deal with how we are toward God, and the second six deal with how we are toward other men and women. All right. Now, interestingly, though, he starts with the last six, but he doesn't mention the last one, which is coveting, and he replaces it with Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. Go there real quick. He replaces it with Leviticus 19, 18. By the way, he wrote the law, so he, he, can, he can do that. In Leviticus 19, 18, though, listen to what it says. In Leviticus 19, 18, it says, You shall t- not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. All right? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus takes the last six on how we're to treat each other, and instead of dealing, quoting the coveting one from t- Moses' Ten Commandments, he gives them Leviticus 19.18. Now the young man says, I've kept all these. But do you notice, what's the rest of his question? He said, I've kept all of these. One of the, Mark and Luke brings out, since my youth. But what does he say next? What do I still what? What do I still lack? Now, again, meditate on the Word of God. Don't just read it. Meditate on it. When the guy says, I've kept all those, probably not, but he thinks he has. But then he says, what do I still lack? What does this young man realize? He still doesn't have it. He's still sensing something's missing. That's the Spirit of God at work in his heart. He thinks he's righteous by doing those things, but he still realizes something's missing. What do I still lack? Then Jesus says to him, well, what he does is he gives him the law again in a different package. When he says, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and come follow me, all he's done is repackage the law. Let me explain to you what I mean by that. Go to Matthew 22. We're in Matthew 19. Look at Matthew 22, verses 35 through 40. Matthew 22, starting in verse 35. One of them, a lawyer, asked Jesus a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second one is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, where does it say that? No, where does it say you shall love the neighbor as yourself? I just showed it to you, Leviticus 19, 18. I showed you that for a reason. When Jesus takes the whole law and sums it up into two parts, 
He takes the first one of the Ten Commandments, and he takes Leviticus 19.18 and puts those two together and says this sums up the whole law. In other words, if you love God with all your heart, you'll keep the first four of the Ten Commandments. And if you love your neighbor as yourself, you'll keep the other six of the other six. You won't lie to them. You won't kill them. You won't steal. You won't covet their stuff. If this man really wants to be considered perfect, he will put God and others first and leave his love of his money and come and follow Jesus. That's what Jesus is really doing. He's just giving him the law back in another form. See, because the man realizes he's lacking something. Jesus, of course, knows you're not getting into heaven by what you do or by keeping the law. He just gives them the law in another form. I've summed up the whole law and the prophets into two things, Jesus says. Love God with everything you have and love your neighbor as yourself. If you're able to keep the law, tell you what, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, that's taking care of your neighbor, and come follow me. Yes, sir? the part where says, if you would be perfect? Yeah. Well, again, this man is still thinking he can be good enough. If you would be perfect, in other words, he's pointing out, you got to be perfect. And, and, and I'm glad you brought that out because wait until you see what happens next. It becomes, it becomes clear. I think it becomes clear to this man. But in, right again, write this down. Look at it later on with the passage we've used a lot. John chapter 6, verses 28 and 29. They come to Jesus and they ask him, as the Jews, they ask him, what must we do to be doing the works that God requires? And then he says this, this is the work of God. Believe in the one that he sent. God must be first. Write this one down again. Luke 14, verses 25 through 33. Luke 14, 25 through 33. Jesus says that in that passage dealing with the cost of discipleship, you have to be willing to forsake everything else and follow him. Count the cost. He must be first. If anybody's not willing to forsake all that he has, mother, brother, brother, lands, he cannot be my disciple. But Jesus knew that this man's money and his possessions were his God. And the young man goes away what? Okay, so if he goes away sorrowful, what does that show us? Well, his heart's definitely not in the right place in the sense that he's not willing to do it. But let me ask you this question. Does the man recognize that he's not willing to do it? Yeah, he's realizing it. And he goes away sorrowful because he realizes, I know what needs to be done, and I'm not willing to do it. Those of us who understand our lostness and our need of a Savior and our inability to, to pay our debt, and we realize there's a way to be forgiven, and that's just to follow Jesus and to give our lives to Him and to just forget about everything else and follow Him, we walk away what? Rejoicing. Because we're, we know we've been saved. This man knew, but he wasn't willing to do it. He didn't walk away confused. He walked away sorrowful. Now, we're going to stop here tonight. And sorry, I'm going to get right to you and we'll answer your question. But because of where we need to do next week, we're going to, this is a great place for us to stop. But I'm going to pull out a couple things real quick. Go ahead, Sheila. Um, do you not think that, you know, the timing of the Holy Spirit is, is a, a perfect. Mm -hmm. And sometimes, you know, we come so close, and yet we... He Are you saying, is there a chance he might be came to that understanding later on? Is that your question? We don't know, but definitely, without question, there have been times the Spirit of God's convicted us, 
And I've heard stories of people over the years who got saved and they said they had the white knuckle syndrome on the pew for weeks. And then finally they surrendered, you know, kind of a deal. We don't know whether or not this man ever did. At this moment, he doesn't respond the way he should. But that's not a bad question. We, don't, we just don't know the answer to it. Let's close tonight with Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21. And we'll pick up here next week. By the way, as I have been writing these studies ahead of time, by doing them just on camera with no one in the room, I know exactly how long it's going to take. Now that there's people in the room, I'm not done my notes. And I love it. I love it. Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Listen to this last verse. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We're going to deal with this in a lot more detail the rest of our study for next week and what we're going to be looking at next week. But let me point this out to you. Jesus knew the man's real heart problem was his God was his possessions. And he wasn't willing to forsake them to follow Jesus. Like we've touched on and we'll get into again next week, to follow Jesus, he is not just first in your life, he's everything. And where your heart is, that's where your treasure is going to be. Or where your treasure is, is where your heart's going to be. And folks, that's why I gave you that little homework assignment. To have God begin to help you understand a little bit more each day what you really have received in this treasure of your salvation. You know why? Because the more you understand it, the greater you understand your treasure, what's going to happen? Your heart's going to follow. Your heart's going to follow. I love you. Thanks so much for coming. Those of you online, can't wait to see you next week.